Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Okay. Um, good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for joining us, um, whichever part of the world you're joining us from, from um, for, for the for, to, to celebrate um, the publication of uh, Dr. Gavin Francis's uh, most recent book, um, Intensive Care. Um, I'm Dr. Javitesh Vashisht. Um, I'm not a medical doctor, it's worth specifying in this context, but I researched the medical humanities um, at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at Edinburgh University. And today's event is uh, very much a collaboration between um, the Royal College of Physicians um, and IASH, as, as we tend to call it at the university. Um, for those who don't know, IASH is part of a, a global network of institutes of advanced studies all over the world. And it certainly is one of the oldest um, in the UK, having recently celebrated its 50th birthday. Um, it, it encourages interdisciplinary thinking about contemporary and topical issues. So outside of the confines of individual disciplinary uh, specialisms, as it were. Um, and I've just been informed that the Royal College has recently, uh, or is about to launch uh, an exciting new initiative called Remote and Rural Remedies, which is about um, the practice of medicine and healthcare in, um, in, in rural Scotland. So that's something that the audience might potentially be interested in exploring. Um, on, the, on the question of uh, blurring disciplinary boundaries, um, there's perhaps hardly a better person to be having with us today than um, Dr. Gavin Francis. Um, and from my understanding, this is Gavin's second visit to IASH. Unfortunately, this is not happening in person, but um, uh, I'll, I'll just briefly introduce Gavin, although he's, he's such an important part of the medical and cultural scene in Edinburgh that, that most of us would, would probably know of him. Dr. Gavin Francis is um, a doctor and writer, and, um, and, and from within his occupation as a doctor, he's probably done a great deal to bridge um, what the English philosopher C.P. Snow uh, in, the in the late 1950s called the culture divide between the sciences um, and the arts and literature. Um, Gavin qualified as a GP in 1999 from Edinburgh University, um, and he's a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians. He practices uh, medicine as a GP in Edinburgh and from time to time to the, um, in, in the Orkney Islands. And on the writing side of things, um, he's a very prolific and a very gifted writer. This um, intensive care is his sixth book of nonfiction. Um, his work has been translated into 18 languages and it has um, quite deservedly uh, received um, a lot of prizes and nominations for literary awards, um, such as the Saltire Nonfiction Book of the Year, the BMA Book Award um, and many other prizes. Um, but um, it's also worth saying that some of Gavin's best writing um, appears when he's reviewing, for example, in the pages of the London Review of Books or, or the New York um, Review of Books. So that is, that's definitely worth um, checking out as well. So um, welcome, Gavin, and thank you so much for your time. 
Oh, thank you, Jivitesh. What a um, glowing introduction. <laughs> that's 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 very well deserved. Um, in in terms of how keep housekeeping, I'm I'm only going to say that um, Gavin and I will uh, probably be speaking for about forty five to 50 minutes at the most. Um, and, and this is an opportunity for me to just, um, just, just open up some questions and lines of thinking. And that will be followed by um, a, a Q&A with the audience at the end. So if you could perhaps start sending us your questions at around 6.30 onwards and, and we'll, we'll take them on board. Um, Kevin, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to briefly say something about the book as well, and then I'm going to invite you to read a little bit, if you can, uh, just for any uh, members in the audience who've perhaps not read the book yet. Um, on, on the face of it, um, intensive care is, um, is, is a work of um, witnessing, as it were. This is a work of, uh, of a medical doctor uh, taking stock not only of the transformation um, in, in his professional sphere, but also of, of the society and the community that um, he's a part of as a result of um, a very much um, ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and in that sense, it's, um, it's a strange occasion to be speaking today because although we're in a way, marking the end of a difficult phase in Scotland and, and the UK. But for those of us, like myself, for instance, who have who called more than two countries our home, which for me is India, um, things are only beginning to take um, a, a very bad turn. Um, so that that's what the book essentially is about. But as of much of Gavin's work, um, his books are not necessarily just about something because of the way he kind of brings to bear um, quite a wide range of um, learning and dabbling in a number of things from literature to history to science to culture. So from time to time, there are the most wonderful digressions um, in the book uh, about virology, literature, art, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and like much of Gavin's work, this is a book that, again, is, is written in the first person. But again, as is characteristic of his work, um, the I um, in, in much of Gavin's writing isn't that of a, a detached, disembodied observer writing from the perspective of kind of scientific knowledge and learning, but it's, it's, it's often quite a a deeply introspective, um, reflective, um, and at times ironic and, and, and very humorous eye. So um, on that note, Gavin, perhaps you'd, you'd want to read us something from the book. Okay, thank you, Jibitesh. Um Yeah, I was just going to read less than a page from near the beginning of the book to set the scene really for it and um, give a little bit of a, an indication about why I decided to write this book. Um, and what I hope that some readers might take from it. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, my fear was of a deluge of infections and deaths caused by the virus. I didn't see that this book would become not just an account of pandemic infection, but of the sudden warping of an entire way of life, of all those lives which have been thrown out of kilter and whose trajectories were now so uncertain, and the care those people would need as a result. I didn't foresee how much the profession that I love would be bruised, transformed and reshaped to cope with the impact of the virus. This book is a contemporary history, an eyewitness account of the most intense months I've known in my 20 year career. A hot take 
on the pandemic that speaks of the tragic consequences of the measures taken against the virus, as much as it tells stories of the virus itself. Crisis is a Greek word which originally describes that moment in the evolution of an illness on which everything hinges when death and recovery are held for a moment in the balance. The slightest nudge towards one or the other may determine the outcome. In hospital, the intensive care unit or intensive therapy unit is where the sickest patients, those whose organs are failing and who will die without drastic and intensive interventions are looked after. Those units do extraordinary work. But over the months of this pandemic, it has often to seem to me as if many other clinicians, scientists, carers, and charity workers outside the ITU have been engaged in something comparably intense. It's frequently seemed as if society itself is on life support and intensive measures, including huge efforts of selflessness, vision and compassion have been required to sustain it. Care is something we do for others, but it's also an emotional attitude of attentive compassion, of kindness, and delivering it can be a privilege as much as it can also be a burden and a responsibility. I'd like to cast a modest spotlight on the care I've seen delivered in the communities I work with, a care that has often been delivered quietly, without headline news, in rural village streets, community clinics, and communal city stairs. It's my hope that by sharing some of those stories, it will help readers see more clearly what has been gained and lost so far through COVID-19 and what we're still in danger of losing. It's only by learning from this pandemic that we can better protect ourselves for the next one. Thank you. Um, that, that really does um, set the scene quite nicely for our conversation. Thanks, Gavin. Um, you, I mean, you just called the book a contemporary history. And, and I was thinking about this, and perhaps this is a good point um, at which to begin. Um, it, it seems to me that one of the reasons why it can be slightly disorienting to read the book is that we're actually still in the middle of many of the things that you're describing, though, of course, um, at least in this part of the world, in, in the United Kingdom, for example, um, things are not as, as bad anymore. Um, but I'm just wondering if, um, if, if you might say something about um, at what point during the pandemic last year did you decide that you were going to write this book? And also, um, by virtue of it describing an ongoing event, this is a necessarily incomplete book. So you, you take us from the beginning of the pandemic in January 2020, um, and the last chapter ends in October. October 2020, I think. And, and of course, it's not an, it, the incompletion is not something that you hide or brush away. It's something you address very much at the end. But I was wondering, um, at, uh, at what point you also decided that you knew enough to write about the pandemic, that you didn't want to wait, as it were, to see how things played out further, and that you wanted to get this book out into the world with a certain kind of urgency, uh, which, which it, it has come out uh, very, very rapidly. And it is, I think, one of the first works um, on, on the pandemic um, in the country to have come from a doctor alongside uh, Rachel Clark's book, for example. So perhaps that's somewhere to begin. Yeah, sure. So um, I began, as, as you mentioned, I write um, reviews sometimes for The Guardian and London Review. Um, I had been 
also in touch with the editors of the long read of the Guardian and I wrote a piece for them um, in 2019 um, about suicide and um, how much a part of my daily work it is. Um, and um, at the beginning of the pandemic, so in February 20, um, 2020, I was already, I mean, I'm always writing something, always, always writing, taking notes, thinking about things, because writing is um, a big part of who I am. It's how I make sense of the world. And I was already taking some notes um, about how I would hope to make sense of this experience where one of the editors at the Guardian Longread um, emailed me and asked me if I would write about the view from general practice of, um, of this. Um, you, you may well remember, Jivitesh, I'm sure you do, the, the feeling that we had last February. We could see what was happening in Italy. We could see what was happening in China and the Far East and, and Iran. And there was this sense that this pandemic was rushing towards us in the UK at great speed. And there was, the, the, the papers were full of the, the dilemmas facing politicians in terms of how fast we should lock down, how quickly we should lock down. Do we have enough intensive care beds? There was this, this huge um, focus on ventilators, whether we had enough ventilators with very few people in the media eye saying what every doctor and nurse knows, which is the ventilators are no use at all if you don't have the doctors and nurses to, to supervise them. Um, and when I was asked by the long read to write about that view, I thought, perfect, you know, there's something to focus my, I, my mind around what I'm doing anyway. You know, I'm writing notes, I'm trying to, to create some coherence out of this for myself. Um, and so I wrote a long read piece um, that came out in March about, about our preparations, really. It was very much the sense then, I think the, the, head the, the headline they gave it was we're clearing the decks because that was the sense then. We, we knew that it was coming and we were trying to, to prepare ourselves in terms of PPE and in terms of um, protecting the most vulnerable patients. And, um, and I found that such a helpful process, you know, writing that long read that um, I just kept going. And um, because writing is such a kind of natural way of life for me to make sense of things, I found it very, very easy actually to, to just write five, 6,000 words a month. And um, when I did the second long read, so I did another long read later in the spring, and um, my uh, medical publishers who are um, Profile Welcome Trust, they, uh, my editor there, you know, he said, oh, I'm really enjoying these Guardian long reads. Um, they're fantastic. You know, are you going to just keep doing them all through the year? And I said, well, probably, you know, I'm sure the Guardian long reads have other things they want to cover. Um, but if you like, I'll just keep doing them for you. And we can, at the end of the year, we'll have a book. And, um, and they said, oh yeah, I think that would be really valuable. So, um, so I began doing that. I've never written a book like this. You know, my, um, my other medical books for Profile and Welcome, um, Adventures in Human Beings, Shapeshifters, I mean, they've each taken me a couple of years to write and they've been very carefully planned and they've had a kind of structure to them. Um, whereas this book was instead entirely dominated by the evolution of events. Yeah. Um, but actually the reason that it ends, it actually ends just into November, it ends with the first announcement of, that Pfizer um, is being approved, the mm -hmm. Pfizer vaccine. So the arc of the book essentially is from 13th of January when I had my first email from Health Protection Scotland about the existence of this um, novel coronavirus in Wuhan through to the announcement, um, I think it was the 11th of November or the 10th of November, 
that the Pfizer vaccine had been approved for use and we're going to start rolling it out soon. I actually had my first uh, JAG as a frontline healthcare worker um, on the 9th of December. So that shows you how quickly uh, the whole thing was rolled out. Um, and, and it fell, although it might seem quite arbitrary, as I was writing this book, I could see it fell into two distinct halves. There was the first half, January, February, March, April, when everything was going up and it was escalation. And then there was May, June, July, August, when everything was going down again. Yeah. And, um, and so it had this kind of uh, contour to it, the story. And so the first half of the book is very much just about this sort of frenetic period. And the second half of the book is much more about um, how we were coping with lockdown, from my point of view as a GP, because lockdowns were still going on. They were only just easing a little bit by the time we got into July, really. So a lot about mental health. There's one of the chapters that's very focused on mental health and on community. Um, a lot about the um, response of the city to the, the homelessness crisis that we really have in, in, in Edinburgh, and more so than in, in Dundee, Aberdeen, or Glasgow even, and how um, extraordinarily a variety of charities and the council and Scottish government and some hotels all came together within a space of days to house every rough sleeper in Edinburgh. It was the most extraordinary um, achievement. Um, and then also the, the, the rollout of the, of the vaccine trials. So there's a chapter also that's very much focused on, on trying to solve this problem, this pandemic through vaccination. And it talks about um, the, the arm of the AstraZeneca trial, which was going on in Edinburgh, um, yeah. speaks to some of the clinicians involved and, and talks about other pandemic, uh, other um, vaccine trials around the world. So it seemed to me that it had quite, a, it had that kind of arc to it. And I was very happy to keep going and write the book for a whole year and just do a 12 month. But it, because it had this shape to it in the end, um, my editor uh, decided to go and press print sometime in November. <laughs> As you do need to do with long projects or they never end. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, um, and I was wondering if, I mean, the account that you give of writing the book is very much um, of, of you as a doctor um, and as a writer trying to make sense of, of what is now increasingly being called an unprecedented situation of this global pandemic. Mm. But at some point, did you have a reader in mind? Um, did, you, um, did, did, did you think that there was more to it than just uh, a solitary mind thinking things through and that you really want to get something across to people? And if so, um, what might that have been if, if that was the case? Oh, I, I think a lot of writers do have an ideal reader in their mind and they write to that person. Yeah. There's a there's a lovely uh, Salinger line, isn't there, about um, um, wanting to phone the author you love. <laughs> well, no, no, it's not that line. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the one in um, I think it's in Raise High the Roofbeam Carpenters when they talk about um, the old lady on her uh, veranda on a rocking chair listening to the radio, yeah. and we're all going on the, the the glass kids are going on the radio, and that was their ideal listener. Um, I I've always just written. Um, the kind of prose that I would want to read. So it's kind of, it's a little bit um, circular, but I'm, I'm just trying to write the best prose that I would appreciate. Um, and I hope that it will find a reader, essentially. Um, 
I think my hope for this one was that I wanted to make a kind of trace or a record as I went along. Already, I look back on what, what we were talking about and thinking about last March, and it seems quite incredible. Remember, there was a huge public debate about whether we should wear masks outside. There was lots of people refusing to wear masks. There was, there was very, very senior politicians were saying there's no evidence, we shouldn't bother wearing masks. And, you know, I wanted to catch those kinds of controversies as they evolved, because it's already quite hard to imagine that. Um, I think that, um, I hope the book is of value to future um, uh, scholars and people who like to think about this period in our life because it is going to pass you know it might be another year it might be another two or three years but it will pass we will get past that just as humanity has got through every other pandemic we've mm. had to face and um, and it will might be a value value to to, to those readers um, and it's certainly been a value to myself you know I've found it extraordinarily helpful um, to make sense of the shape of what we've been through over this year. And of all the um, readers' comments that I've had, that's been the most gratifying to me. Um, when people have come back to me and said, um, I've been so bewildered by this year. I've been so thrown by this year. I've just feel so, felt disorientated and, and, and seeing the shape of it again, reading the shape of it and reliving it again has made, made it um, more coherent has made it made sense for me and yeah. if if even half the readers that read that book feel as if they've got more of a handle of what we've all been through then mm. I think it's been a great success. Yeah but I, I think what the book does really well um, and I can see why it chimes with with readers who've been through prolonged lockdowns is is it's precisely the kind of documentary aspiration that that you that you're describing in that we've all been just holed up and siloed within our four walls and of course there has been uh, an unceasing kind of flow of news that we've been listening to but i think what you do is you're able to kind of patch together a lot of various aspects of the pandemic from from your very privileged but also dangerous position as, as someone intervening in and, and, and treating patients. So I think it, it gives that perspective that I think many of us might not have had, uh, certainly um, as a reader, um, I felt that. And, and speaking of perspective, um, Gavin, the way the pandemic's been mediatized is that we, we are so used by now to seeing um, these images from intensive care units of, of specialists clad in, in protective kits, um, of, of really situations of crises. And, 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 and that's the kind of doctor that we've become associated to, to seeing in relation to the pandemic. But your book is written from the perspective of a general practitioner. And, and I wanted to just, just briefly talk about that. Um, it, it seems to me, based on reading this book, but also your other works, that uh, you're very much a product of a certain tradition of general practice in, in, in the United Kingdom that um, perhaps you might think um, um, is, is, is not in vogue anymore or is, is dying out. Um, it's a tradition in which the general practitioner is very much a part of the community and has longstanding ties with the patients that he or she sees, knows, knows them over a long period of time. But it's not just this, this duration, but also something about the, the quality of the contact between the general practitioner and the patient where uh, 
where you're trying to see the patient not just as a diseased body, but but as an individual with a history. Um, and and that seems like um, that seems like such an important perspective from which to document the pandemic. Because, of course, before uh, before someone is referred to intensive care, the general practitioner is likely to be their first point of call if they're afflicted with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you might say something about um, this, this kind of tradition of general practice and, or, or in fact, for that matter, what drew you to general practice in the first place? Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Jujesh. It's quite yeah, you know, it's a complex question of a few different arms to it. I, I mean, I should point out that I um I see myself far more actually as a transitional figure between that kind of old school general practice and whatever's coming. You know, I mean, I um the 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 in the UK, Dr. Finlay's the famous one, Dr. Finlay's casebook from the the 60s, where this very kind of traditional uh, community-based general practitioner who was on call 24 hours a day for that community, who everybody would know, who would deliver the babies in that community and um, assist with the palliative care of those dying and be in the same place for 30 odd years. Um, mm. Now that is the old model of general practice. And um, and it was kind of possible, I think, with the medical knowledge that was available in the 50s and 60s, um, there was huge problems with that model. And uh, if we look at the figures for uh, the alcoholism and suicide rates of doctors in that period of time, they were astronomical. Um, there were a lot of problems with um, the, the, the very deep commitment of one professional to a community um, that have been outlined by many writers from you know, John Berger's Fortunate Man yeah. through to um, Cronin's The Citadel and so on. Um, I, I see myself very much as a kind of halfway house. You know, I work part time. I work half the week because the other half the week I'm at home looking after my kids because in the 21st century, you know, my I don't have like Dr. Finlay. I don't expect my wife to be home waiting for the phone to ring. And so I am only working clinically half of the time, more or less, a bit more than half maybe. Um, I'm also writing, as you know, and I'm trying to keep engaged and interested in all these different kinds of fields within the humanities and social sciences and trying to write um, um, pieces and um, uh, journalistic type pieces. Um, so my approach to medicine has sees the value of that great commitment that used to stand, um, and um, but also recognizes that it was unsustainable in many ways, certainly, and seems to be unsustainable for the people of my generation. I've been in my practice in Edinburgh for 11 years. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, it, I hope it does come across. I do very, very much believe that um, the relationships that we built up as general practitioners over years and years have helped us get through this pandemic. Yeah. So that a lot of people were very, um, uh, what's the right word? They were very much, we're, were really pushing digital connection and, and virtual consultations at the beginning mm-hmm. um, of this pandemic. And those were very welcome, but my conviction is that they were only really worked if they worked at all, they only really worked because we were doing them with people we already knew in real life, face to face. And we were able to put up with the glitches and the delays and the technical problems because we already had relationships with these patients that had been built up long over years and years. And so I can remember in the early days, early months of the pandemic, you know, for example, 
doing a video call with a patient of mine prone to anxiety, having a panic attack and yes. trying to calm them down by chatting to them. And a big part of that experience was the fact that I was talking to them from my clinic room, which they knew and had been in many times before. Mm. And, and I'm not convinced that if we move forward with this idea that we can deliver medical care virtually, that, that that's going to lose all its value. That, that it's not going to be as effective going forward. It was, it's been effective as a stopgap, but that's only because of the relationships that we built up in the real world. Okay. Um, so that answers that part of the question. You also asked about really why um, I was particularly drawn to general practice. I mean, I just love it. I just love the job. It's a fantastic job because it's a very privileged position to um, have society take you and pay for your fees. You know, obviously I didn't pay university fees to become a doctor. Um, to train me up in the biological knowledge that I would need to be able to diagnose and effectively make therapeutic plans for all sorts of different kinds of problems, but also then be immersed very much in these social worlds. So I'm not in a yeah. laboratory. I'm, 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 I'm very much in the social context of trying to help people understand that, that divide between disease and illness, what constitutes illness, what constitutes disability, how to help people navigate that for themselves and the the most wonderful thing about it is just the ceaseless variety you know you never know what's going to happen each day and you go you might go straight from um seeing somebody who's got um you know uh, a skin boil to somebody who's dying and their family are gathering around them and you're talking about what their priorities are and you go straight from that to somebody who's having a psychotic breakdown and is hallucinating that they're being spoken to by demons yeah. or angels. And, mm. and that kind of variety is something that I gain a lot of nourishment from. And although I'm not an expert in anything, I'm also not expected to be an expert in anything. And, mm. and that for me is one of the great thrills and the great pleasures of, of general practice. So uh, I, yes, I think my hunch is right in that you, you find it quite liberating not being tied to a particular specialty of medicine because that that gives you the room that I, I think you need um, to kind of move between specialties and, and kind of bring all of them together to, to understand how a, a patient that you're seeing, what is unique about their illness, uh, for example. Um, I should say that I'm, you know, I'm absolutely delighted that half of medical graduates become specialists because you know I, I spend all day in correspondence with specialists and I very very much value their opinions you know I, and one of the the most interesting parts of the day is when I'm in correspondence with a cardiologist and a psychoanalyst and a radiologist and, and they're all giving me parts of their expertise that I can put together to try and make more sense of what's going on with the patient and, and that's a great privilege too not just the variety of the different kinds of problems people bring to your clinic but the variety of being able to communicate with so many different kinds of specialists and try to understand their own um, uh, distinctive language and, yeah. and, and communicate with them in it. Yeah. And, and do you think that um, if you're operating in a more specialist capacity as, as say a consultant within a certain kind of medicine, do you think that that ability to uh, kind of like draw upon these various perspectives is, is, is lost or not as freely available as say when you're a general practitioner? No, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, certainly, um, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, audience watching this will be um, hospital specialists of various kinds. And, and, and I think 
most doctors enjoy that aspect, that interdisciplinary aspect of speaking to people outside their own um, particular silo. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, you know, if you're most hospital specialists, for example, don't see children anymore. So, uh, and I really like the fact that I still see children. Um, most hospital specialists will have a, a huge amount of um, psychological issues to deal with in their patients, functional problems and um, psychological overlay in their patients. Um, and, and I imagine that they all have to retain the capacity to, to speak that language, to try and understand um, more about the, the um, patient's vision of what's wrong with them rather than actually their specialist knowledge of what's wrong with them. Um, so, and, and like in all specialties, it'll vary. It varies from individual to individual. You know, I know, um, there's, I know many neurologists, for example, are very are fascinated by that psychological component of their work. Other neurologists can't stand it. So, yeah, um, yeah just depends. Um, yeah, and, and just going back to that, um, I mean, you, there's, uh, there's, it's quite evident again from from your work in general, but also what you've been saying is that um, the mind is, is 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 a matter of great interest for you, even when you're practicing so-called organic medicine. And what you know, one of the the things that often came to my mind as I was reading not only intensive care but also sometimes, say, if you read Adventures in, in Human Being, is this idea of holding that comes from psychoanalysis. It's, um, it's this idea that Winnicott came up with, the pediatrician and, and analyst, that there was something about um, uh, this, the early relationship between the child and the caregiving figure um, that, that could perhaps also be replicated later on in the context of, say, um, the, the, the general practice um, encounter, clinical encounter, whether it was in terms of the continuity of care, so seeing someone over a long time, but also being able to um, kind of contain their their worries and anxieties within within this this familiar setting. Um, mm. And 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 when you describe your uh, when when you bring in the clinical vignettes uh, from your work into the book, um, there's there's. What, what immediately stands out is the amount of attention and attunement that you have to kind of, as it were, the space between you and the patient. And I was wondering how much of it do you think can be taught in, in, in the course of, of becoming a doctor and, and how much of it is acquired via other means, not necessarily even medical training, uh, that, that, that kind of ability, one, to see the patient as, as a holistic individual, but also to be, to be very attuned to what is happening between the clinician and the patient during, during a consultation. Mm. Okay. Um... Yeah. Thanks, Jivitesh, you've got these wonderfully uh, baroque, complex questions. I enjoy them. I enjoy trying to see how I'll approach that. So from the point of view of the Winnicott and the idea of holding the space as a clinician or as a therapist, um, I think a lot of what patients want from a clinical consultation is to know what do I have wrong with me? Does it have a name? So there's is there a relief that comes from that? name you know Berger writes a lot about that in a fortunate man mm -hmm. that when you when when the, something has a name you can then hold yourself against it and you can identify your suffering rather than it being something very deep and existential and and threatening you can say it's something outside me other people have this thing that has this name and I can um there are ways of coping with it so um 
it, one part of it is that naming and another part of it is the reassurance. So a lot of people, when they come to, um, the, to see the clinician, what they want to know is, is this normal? Can this be, is this within the, the remit of what you would expect somebody to, to suffer with my particular kind of problem? And, and as a GP who's not a specialist and only has 10 minutes with their patient, not the hour or two hours that a psychoanalyst would have, um, the, that kind of holding that, that I might do is at a much more superficial level, I think, than a psychotherapist would do. Um, I don't have anything like the space to, to allow people to unravel that much of themselves or that much of their fears. But I hope that what I can do um, is, is say, yes, this what you're experiencing is usual. I've seen it a hundred times this year, even, or I've seen this numerous times before, and, and I can expect it to pass. You know, Winnicott writes really beautifully about that, doesn't he? That, that, that you can just expect to wait. I, I, I have had great experience in this business of waiting and waiting and waiting, he says, just holding that space and for the patient to, to start to feel better themselves. Um, I forgot the second part of your question now. Um, I, I was wondering if, if, if some of that ability to, if, if you wanted to just continue in the vocabulary of holding and containing and just being sensitive to, you know, what the patient is going through and how to communicate a piece of news to them or how best to comfort them, how much of it do you think comes from medical training, but also perhaps say so-called extra medical sources? So for example, um, your, your immersion in literature and, and, and art and, and the humanistic disciplines more, more generally? Um, I think it's very, very hard to define, Jyotish. So the, um, I have learned a lot from my reading, but I've learned a huge amount from mentors, that um, people who have essentially been role models to me in general practice. And um, people that were able to explain to me um, just how... The, the patient was basically this this sort of rich territory of a foreign land and you could never possibly explore all of it and you don't have enough of yourself to be able to give yourself to it so you have to you have to to create some fairly firm boundaries within yourself when you set out into this territory of of medical learning you have to protect yourself first and foremost but then once you've found strategies to do that that there's so many different opportunities out there, not only for helping people, which is supposed to be the primary aim, you know, the primary aim of medicine, I firmly believe is not to prolong life, but just to ease suffering. Mm -hmm. So you set out on that mission of trying to ease some suffering, often in a very modest way. Um, and you find out so many things about human experience from all the people that come to you and tell you their story. So for me, very much, I can't really separate the two of the, the things that are in my practice that I learned from watching other really great doctors at work as a trainee and as a, a, a registrar in general practice. And then all the things that I've then added on the top from my own reading over the years. But ultimately, you know, it's about how curious you are. If you're a kind of person who's curious about the world and curious about other people, then you will be interested in that space between you and the patient. You'll be interested to know what you can find out in it. If you're not curious about them and you see them very much as a constellation of symptoms that you can um, deliver a particular treatment to, 
Um, and I'm not dismissing that model of medicine. You know, we need doctors like that too. Um, sure. But uh, you're going to be less interested in that space. You're going to be kind of irritated by the unusual aspects of the patient that are getting in the way of you seeing the constellation mm. rather than interested in those aspects of the patient that, that, that for you give the job its pleasure. Yeah. Yes, um, that was actually, I was going to come to that next. So thank you. It, it does seem very much, again, based on accounts you give of your, of your practice in, in, in the stuff that you write is that for you, you're more interested in how, how the general, um, let, me, let me put it differently, uh, you're less interested in coercing an individual patient to conform to a general pattern rather than, rather than seeing how the general pattern manifests very, very specifically in a patient, if that, if that makes sense. It's, it's very much, uh, just, just going back to that question of attunement, of, of a great deal of curiosity and interest in what makes this patient or this individual who's sitting in your consulting room different from the next and, 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 and all the layers and layers of their individual experience uh, uh, coming to that. And I was going to ask, um, Gavin, you're often compared um, and your work is often kind of placed in a certain tradition of doctor writers, um, not just in England, but across the world. So, for example, Oliver Sacks, um, for example, Paul Kalanithi or Atul Gavande and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and what this body of work, one of the things that that this body of work is known for is, is quite empathetic and, and, and richly textured stories about patients. And, and that, is, that is a staple of your work as well. Um, I was going to ask you what the word case study means to you. And, and when, when you decide to write about patients other than very pressing concerns about confidentiality, for example, in the way that you preface this book with, um, What's going through your mind when you when you realize that yes, I'm going to be writing about this patient? What what are your consider what considerations drive that? Um, so, as you alluded to, Jyotish, you know all my books begin with a um, a note to the reader which um, describes my approach to patient confidentiality, because which isn't just the most important aspect of any kind of engagement with writing about medicine mm. it's, it's also the law <laughs> and it's also my sure. EMC um, registration so it's not something that I take lightly at all um, I would never write anything about any of my patients that I think that that could be recognizable and yeah. so people so and I if people pick up this book and want a series of true life stories or case studies then they're going to be disappointed which is why I have it as the very first page of the book um, all of the stories that are in this are either um, composites of several patients um, which have been disguised out of all possibility of recognition or they are situations so common that they are utterly undistinguishable anyway so for example to talk uh, in the recent COVID um, um, out of hours experience of having to admit breathless, middle-aged, slightly overweight, often, sadly, men. Uh, there were so many of people fit this kind of demographic 
um, that these were the people who were ending up in ITU. And you can see the statistics yourself. It was um, a particular kind of group. So that group becomes, you know, there's no need to disguise pretty much what's going on here with that kind of image. Similarly, a lot of the focus of the book is um, about um, the effects of the lockdown on people's mental health. You know, normally as a GP, about a third of my work is to deal with aspects of mental health, but through this last year, it's been more like half to two thirds because the effects of lockdown are been so grave on people's mental health. It's been truly appalling. Um, so when I write in the book about, for example, uh, a teenager who cuts themselves yes. um, to deal with the stress of never knowing when they can see their friends again, when they're going to get to school again, and um, whether there's going to be any jobs for them, what the future holds for them, they can't complete any of those important tasks of adolescence that, as you know, Winnicott it takes is so vital. And yes. then, then they were so, they're so common, those conversations. In fact, they still are. They're easing up now, thankfully, that the schools are back. And um, that I didn't see the need to, um, to have any concern whatsoever that any of this would be recognisable. Um, so that's my approach. My approach is that a case study is something which should be true and is for the literature and is for my medical peers to appreciate a particular situation. Whereas what I am writing here is something entirely different. It's much more in a gray zone between fiction and nonfiction. Um, it's been disguised beyond all recognition from what really happened. But I think and I hope the reader appreciates that there is a deeper truth there about the description that I'm painting, which still can illuminate in the same way what a factual account would illuminate. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, I was going to leave the question of, um, of uh, John Berger's A Fortunate Man and, until the very end of, of our conversation, but I'm, I'm really glad that it's, it's come up so many times already. Um, but I think before, before we get to that, I'm, I'm just gonna ask a, a couple of other questions about, about literature in generally. Um, what have you been reading over the course of the pandemic? And, and was there anything in particular that you read that you felt sustained you, but also perhaps contributed to the writing of the book, apart from the obvious um, Daniel Defoe text with which each of your chapters begins a, a journal of a plague year. Um, mm. do, you, do you remember what was on your bookshelf? Oh, no, it's really difficult to say. I've just, I'm, I'm, I'm reading all the time so much, you know, I've, um, so I read a lot of Poetry, contemporary poetry. I'm in a book group with some friends that um, we do a different uh, collection every three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. So reading a fair amount of that. I've been um, uh, writing pieces. Um, I did a piece for New York Review recently about psychiatry and psychiatric history of psychiatric diagnosis. So I've been reading that. Um, I'm doing a piece at the moment about social media and the deleterious effects of social media on mental health. Um, I at one point in lockdown, I, I just needed some escapism fiction. I sat down and read the whole of Paul Scott's Raj Quartet again, you know, that was one of these right. big door stoppers. Yes. Um, I, yeah, it's really hard to say, Jivitesh, so much. So it's, it's not been anything particularly uh, pandemic themed in the way that so many people turned to say something like Albert Camus' The Plague um, or so on and so forth. I did read uh, Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year at the beginning and that's why each chapter of this book has a 
one line from Defoe's Plague Year because just all these lines kept jumping out at me as being so relevant to what we were going through um, at the time that they seemed to me, wow, we've hardly changed in 400 years, really. Mm-hmm. And, and about Berger and, and a fortunate man, um, you know, as, as I made my way through um, intensive care and I was reading the epigraphs from Defoe, but it seemed as if there was something else that the book was either reminding me of or it seemed to be in dialogue with. And about halfway through, I realized and I thought, hang on, it, 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 it reminds me a lot of uh, Berger's um, A Fortunate Man. And then sure enough, a few chapters later, you you do actually bring the book um, in. And, and, and I think you're talking about what Berger says about uh, the general practitioner uh, being a kind of a, obje- a repository of objective memories for the patients that he sees precisely because they have built up a, 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 a long acquaintance with that particular patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you'd say something about that book, Gavin. Um, I think um, not many people know that you've played a very important role in bringing that very important book back into print. It, it was out of print for a long time. And then you recently brought it back and, and, and even wrote an introduction to it. Um, what is your relationship with that book and that relationship, what is your relationship with the figure of John Sassel like? Um, you've hinted at it in, in what you've said about the so-called outdated and old tradition of general practice that's no longer feasible and in which there's a serious question of boundaries between the life of the doctor and that of the patient. But um, I'd be really interested in hearing more uh, if you had anything to say. The book, um, for, for those um, watching who don't know about this book, it was published in 1967 and it's the account by John Berger, the um, art critic, um, who spent six weeks living with a GP in Gloucestershire, in the, well, in the Forest of Dean, really, and um, who he just, he just spends the six weeks where he goes, every time he gets called out at night, Berger goes with him with a photographer. Every time yeah. he sits in the consultations with him, he sits in everywhere with him. And then he writes this most extraordinary essay. I mean, it's only 30,000 words. It's not a long book. Um, this most extraordinary essay where he, he, he treats the GP and his consultations with his patients as a kind of piece of art that as a critic he can take apart. Um, uh, and I just really love that book for so many reasons, you know, because um, it examines a part of general practice which is kind of gone now, that um, it still exists in, in the islands um, on yes. single-handed practices, but the kind of numbers of patients that you see now in these island practices is a lot lower generally than, than, um, than, than Sassel was looking after. Um, it shows the huge strains that they were under, these doctors, and as, as many of your... Um, uh, many of the, the listeners today will know that, that Sassel um, committed suicide um, in, I think it was 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, it also talks very much about that, ex- that relationship that the, the, with the patient that the doctor adopts, whereby, you know, you mentioned earlier that Winnicott was, was trying to hold a kind of almost parental kind of approach. Um, and Maternal approach, perhaps he would say. Yeah, but, but Berger doesn't like that at all. He says, no, this has got, because he was very, he was too steeped in Freud, uh, Berger. He, he, he yeah. said, no, no, that's got too much of a sexual element to it. Um, it's much more like the, the ideal doctor is an ideal older brother. So he's, he's like an, he's a fraternal 
person that you call upon for a, a, a wise perspective every so often. And I think the reason I love it is because it examines the profession that I love, which is general practice, but it also shows that profession in context. You know, he compares it to, to Conrad's views of mariners. He compares it to Paracelsus's views of the universal man. He compares it to um, all these kinds of different quests that people have into searching for the meaning of their lives. And, um, and there are very few books, I think, about medicine and certainly about general practice that try to frame the profession in those kind of, with that kind of breadth of horizon about what, what it is that it's really trying to do or what its potential is for what it really can do. Um, and so that's why I love it. So sometimes I do feel like um, every, every one of my medical books anyway is, is a bit of a footnote to um, A Fortunate Man. I, I would say it's a footnote, but it's, it's deeply, deeply reminiscent um, uh, of that book. But just to be clear, you don't approach the figure of John Sassel as a kind of a ideal medical practitioner that you would ever like to or aspire to emulate. You, you, you're quite clear that he's, 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 I don't know if, if a dated figure is, is the right expression, but it seems like you also see him as, as a kind of a cautionary tale for, for striving towards a kind of an ideal that is impossible to achieve. And, and sure enough, it's, it's, it seemed like it was impossible to achieve because I think Berger talks about Sassel's own uh, problems with severe depression. If, if he felt that he was failing his patients or, or if he wasn't meeting up to his own standards um, as a doctor. Oh, absolutely. I think he was a very um, tortured man in many ways, but also, you know, a, a good one. And um the, yeah, there's a lovely, um, I forget where, it, I think it was the review, Philip Toynbee, um, mm -hmm. actually one of Sassel's patients. Patients, yeah. Philip Toynbee was the observer literary critic through the whole of the 60s, mm -hmm. 70s, the, um, the father of Polly Toynbee of The Guardian. Anyway, Philip Toynbee um, reviewed A Fortunate Man and he criticised it for leaving out Sassel's wife, Betty, yes. um, very much because he said, look, this... Again, I'm, I'm back to why we don't have this model anymore. The, those the country doctors of that era could only do the job they did was because they had a wife, and they were all men pretty much. There were some women, but they, there was a wife at home. And get this, the NHS had a rule whereby you could employ anybody as a receptionist, but you were not allowed to employ your wife. So there was actually an NHS rule within um, the, the, the way GPs were paid that their wives were expected to do this kind of work. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And so Toynbee says in his review, he said, this book is missing a massive part because I know this man, he is my doctor and I know he could not do his job without mm -hmm. his wife. And the fact that she isn't in it is a big uh, lacuna, if you like. Okay. Um, perhaps a final question, Gavin, before we move over to the Q&A. Um, do you have any predictions for what pandemic literature might look like in the coming few years or what kind of writing we might see emerging from the pandemic or what kind of writing you would like to see emerge from the pandemic? Mm. I, know, I remember seeing a, a piece by, uh, there was a commissioning editor somewhere, maybe uh, the Atlantic or Slate or something saying, um, I've had enough uh, pitches from writers saying what lockdown has taught me. Um, 
I think we're probably, I think we might be in for a treat actually, because there's going to, there's been a lot of very brilliant, very talented people have been stuck in their house for a year. <laughs> and so I'm hopeful that we're going to see some quite extraordinary um, works of literature start hitting the presses quite soon. Um, yeah, that might be one of the positives that come out of it. Um, there'll be many positives that come out of it. We haven't really talked about that, but um, that'll be one of them. Yeah, I, I hope that we will um, come out of this with a great sense that um, lots, lots of things are possible. We've shown in the last year just how easy it is to cut red tape, make things happen. Mm -hmm. um, lots of cross-disciplinary things. Um, yeah, I can't really make predictions about what's going to happen in literature because by, by the very nature of it, the best stuff is going to be utterly unpredictable. It's going to surprise me. Mm -hmm. Well, at least in terms of nonfiction, we'll hopefully hear not only from doctors who were on the front line or general practitioners like yourself, but you know, there's there's a lovely moment in, in the book where you say that that it's it's the the work of caregiving isn't just a prerogative of doctors and specialists, but so much of this work has been done by nurses, for example, and also other people from the wider community. Um, so at least I'm hoping more, that... More work of it has been done by nurses than by doctors, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, so at least I would hope that we, we get to hear their stories as well as those of patients as much as, uh, as, much as doctors' accounts. Yeah, that, that would be welcome to... Okay. Uh, would you like to take some questions at this as point? Any time. Yes, I think we have about fifteen minutes. Um, um, are there any? Are there any that stand out to you, or would you like me to? No, please post them to you. Um, right. So we have a question from Steve who asks. Uh, Given what has been learned about the world's lack of readiness when it comes to predictable but rare events, is there anything from the medical field that isn't a pandemic that you're more concerned about at the moment? Mm. Anything that isn't a pandemic? Mm. Um, I mean, for me, just the nature of my work is that it's, it's just so much dominated at the moment by mental health and also by people's expectations of what good mental health is and what good mental health care is. And we're going to really see that. I mean, it's interesting in Scotland, you know, we've got um, uh, we've got Scottish Parliament parliamentary elections coming up very soon. And every single party has said that they see mental health provision as a key problem area. Um, I, I just see it in my own practice, you know, the, the length of time people have to wait to see a child and adolescent psychiatrist is now well over a year. Um, the number of people who believe that they need to see a psychiatrist for experiences that, that for me would fall within the kind of remit of human experiences that I would normally be happy to deal with as a, as a general practitioner is also increasing and increasing. So. Mm -hmm. I think we've got a twin, a double whammy going on right now. We not only um, have an enormous problem with a men unfolding mental health crisis caused by the pandemic and all the economic effects of the pandemic and the fact that we've all been obliged to give up on this central aspect of our humanity, which is to share space and hug one another and, and so on, but also that we seem to be at a cultural moment where um, more and more of my patients are less happy to have their mental health looked after by somebody like me and want to see a specialist because there's a cultural expectation that you need to see a specialist. 
And so that is causing those two things coming together are, are causing a real um, pinch point. Um, a question that might be of interest to you, um, because it merges two of your interests, is um, are you seeing any crossover between the problems you're seeing in your patients who are isolated during lockdown and those you saw in the isolated group in the Antarctic? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, so um, when I lived in Antarctica, there's a, there's a wonderful um, uh, description they call they call it like a thousand yard stair in a 20 yard room um, and people who've been isolated in Antarctic for quite a long time um, it's been proven that their EEG changes their brainwaves change shape and they also just become um, some of them become very uh, depressed uh, lethargic a lot of problems with lassitude um, there's also people start to feel an element of sort of depersonalization, dissociation. If you're in a place that's only composed of ice and light and uh, nothing else, and you don't get to see anybody else, you start to lose touch with what reality really is. Um, and so I've definitely seen that starting to appear over the last six months among my patients. So many people, especially as I was alluding to earlier, you know, among the adolescent group, this is a group who absolutely have to socialize for their, you know, we all know every, every psychotherapist and psychoanalyst knows that adolescence, part of the major task of adolescence is all about socialization and finding your group, finding your tribe, getting your peer group. And they've just not been able to do that. And so um, I'm finding among that group a real, um, a real upsurge of this kind of depersonalization because so much of their life is lived through their phones and they're not allowed to just go and hang out with their friends. And we'll be seeing the consequences of that, I think, for a long, long time to come. Um, the, there are moments of kind of quiet anger throughout the book, Gavin, in, in, in relation to government policies that, that, that should have been overturned uh, long before and that contributed to the pandemic becoming what it was. But there's an interesting question that asks, um, if, if, if you think uh, that we also see in the pandemic and the way it's played out, the impact of a decade of austerity in healthcare and the effect that it's had on the NHS, um, would you perhaps like to address that? Um, yes, yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you feel there's quite a few moments of quiet anger. You know, I don't, I don't see myself as a particularly angry person. That's um, why I think quiet anger. <laughs> and and I think one thing that's come home to me again and again throughout this year is that I'm very glad I'm not a politician, I'm a doctor, um, because I see that the decisions, I've seen just how much the decisions the politicians make inevitably constantly trade off one group's interests against the other groups. So we have made so many sacrifices as a society. Um, the, particularly youngsters with the closure of the schools have made so many sacrifices for the sake of protecting their elders. Um, and that is an example of how we've, politicians have been forced to trade off the interests of one group against the interests of the other one. If you're at high risk of dying of COVID, of course it's in your interest for the schools to close. If you're 14 years old and will shake COVID off in a day or so, it is not in your interest for schools to close. And so politicians have had to make this trade-off constantly. And I hope that the sacrifices that the young have made won't be forgotten. Um, I think um, 
although I'm glad that as a doctor, I only have to um, try and make the best decision for the person sitting in front of me, that simplifies my life um, very much. Um, I'm, I'm aware that the, the decisions that I have to take exist in a much broader context. So for example, um, the decade of austerity that you, you described. Um, in my own work, I see that mostly in terms of lengths of waiting lists, because whatever, the NHS is still absolutely fantastic if you're in crisis. So if you get hit by a bus or you um, your gallbladder ruptures, the mm -hmm. NHS is amazing. It's there for you and sorts you out. If you are in agony with needing a hip replacement, or if you have chronic stomach pain or waiting for an endoscopy, um, then you will wait a very, very long time. But also the the other impact that I've seen very much is just the effect of um, uh, council funding cuts. So the kind of provision that's available for children with autism, for example, has just been really atrocious um, through this pandemic, as far as I can see, the patients of mine that have had to suffer, and the kinds of access to, um, to supportive care, um, the, you know, like care firms, for example, um, bid to provide personal care for vulnerable elderly people by trying to undercut one another in how little they pay their carers. Now, that's a system that should just change. Like we shouldn't have a system whereby in order to provide care to the most vulnerable elderly people in our community, care companies have to out, out underbid one another to, do, to be the cheapest because it just means that you get um, very poorly paid, poorly valued staff. Um, so, from the point of view of the effect of 10 years of austerity, yes, it's written there all over my job, but mostly in that, from that community aspect, how, how devastated um, uh, the provision of personal care and supportive care to vulnerable elderly has been, but also um, in terms of um, kids that need extra support, how, how much they've struggled. Um, we have an anonymous question about what your practice looks like at the moment in the current stage of whatever stage of the pandemic we're at, compared to how it's been described in the book. Mm, okay, um, so only this week we have gone back to half and half face-to-face -face and telephone appointments. So um, essentially we have been on for most of last year, we were on almost exclusively telephone triage for everything with um, three or four people coming in face to, for face-to-face -face visits every day, either people that I needed to do a joint injection, people who I absolutely had to examine to rule out um, some red flag symptom of cancer. Um, and then laterally, um, um, some people with really chronic, severe mental health problems have started to come back in as well, just because it's so difficult to have those consultations on the phone. Um, but only this week, yeah, we've gone back to about half and half, which has been just such a delight. Every GP I've spoken to has just um, been feeling a sense of relief that we're starting to go back to the job we were trained for. Because although we all are skilled in and do telephone triage, it's, there's very few doctors who enjoy that as a part of their job that nourishes them. Um, so, yeah, my, from that point of view, we're um, moving back towards normality really gently, and we're all just watching with bated breath to, to see what happens with the easing of, of lockdown, the opening of pubs, and hoping that enough of the population has been vaccinated that, that we don't see those spikes that, that make us have to go back into lockdown again. And in addition, we're all watching to see that there's no um, 
the, the new variants are not um, escaping the, the vaccine protection. Um, another anonymous question, um, it says, I've been incredibly impressed with how the NHS has handled this awful time for us all. What moments of people stepping up to the challenge have particularly stood out for you? Hmm. Well, it's just been, there's been a lot of them. So, for example, um, when we realised that this virus way back in April, you know, when we, March, April, we realised this virus was um, hanging around on surfaces for days even, and we were going to have to discourage patients from, from coming to general practice surgeries, and they were going to have to be set up specific COVID clinics around the country where people would go to be assessed um, and get a COVID test if necessary. Um, yeah, the, the speed with which that was rolled out and staffed by volunteers um, was quite extraordinary. Um, and that was very impressive. And then again, you know, when the vaccines came around um, and the, the call went out looking for people to, to administer the vaccines, immediately it was overwhelmed by people that were wanting to help. And so that has really, really impressed me. Those kind of examples of people stepping up um, one of the, uh, one of the themes in the book, as you mentioned, is the the um, how the homelessness issue in Edinburgh was temporarily solved, um, but it showed that it was possible just with a little bit of goodwill and allowing professionals, uh, the charity workers and the council and um, other people involved in healthcare who knew what was needed, just giving them the funds and the green light to go and do it, and um, within two days uh, all the rough sleepers were housed. I mean that was fantastic to see. And then lastly, one of the real silver linings for me has been a, a, a diminution of the barriers between my own role out in the community and the consultant um, specialist colleagues that I communicate with about our mutual patients. It's been really nice this year how quickly we've all just um, uh, defaulted to, to email communication about our patients. It's been very, very fast instead of the sort of cumbersome leaving messages with each other's secretaries. Sure. Um, and, and I think that um, breaking down of silos between specialists has been one of the, the, the fruits of this year. Um, perhaps a last question that that's something I'm interested in knowing as well. Um, are you thinking about what you're going to work on next or are you planning on having some well-deserved rest? <laughs> um, well, rest for me is writing, so I'm not going to stop. You know, this is one of the wonderful things about um, having a, a life that fuses medical practice, which is in itself innately satisfying but exhausting, but doing half of it, doing it half the time, and the other half the time doing something that you find um, reciprocally restorative, if you like. So um, I don't need a rest. I just need to be able to carry on doing a half my time medicine and half my time writing. Um, I'm really looking forward to being able to travel. <laughs> you know, as somebody who's spent his whole life traveling whenever possible, I've found this extraordinarily difficult. You know, I used to uh, do a great deal of traveling and um, uh, now I can't. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and writing projects. Yeah, I've always got a few in the back burner. I've always got some, not just I've got piece for the London Review at the moment, Brewing. I've got another one for New York Review. I've got a book, a commission that's coming through that I'm starting to think about. Um, yeah, so watch the space. So I'm guessing that the next big book project will probably evolve out of these 
London Review of Books pieces, perhaps in the way that your work tends to develop? Um, I don't know, actually. I've not written um, a diary essay type piece for them for quite a while. Um, um, so a lot of my pieces lately for the London Review have been um, straight review essays. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. But it's great when a new idea comes to you. It's, I never find that I never find that a stressful or anxiety-provoking time being between projects. I get I sometimes get a little bit restless, but I'm not really anxious because when when a new idea comes to me and I want to start writing a new book, it's um, it kind of sucks you in, and it's a little bit like falling in love. You know, you just you start looking forward to sitting down to thrash out this idea. You're actually when I know that I'm getting into something that's going to become a book when I look forward to getting to my desk because I think, oh, I've got to get that down or I'm really looking forward to sort of straightening that out in my head. Um, so I know it'll come. I have a hunch that the academics in the audience might be listening to that with bewildered incomprehension about writing coming easy to you and being restorative. But um, thank you so much, Gavin, for, for joining us this evening. And, and thank you to everyone who um, tuned in. And I hope our conversation, even if it um, digressed perhaps a bit too far from the book at times, um, gave everyone a flavor of what the book is. And I hope that um, you'll all pick up a copy and, and read it. Thank you so much. Thanks, invitation. Thanks to the Royal College of Physicians and David as well. That was uh, very good of you to invite uh, to invite me along. Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to RCPE ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.